When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. As the radio man said, and as I don't have another introduction written once again for this week, a sneak peek of my weekly pain point is that I forgot to rewrite the transitionary introduction to our episodes, but this episode is 98, episode 98, it is entitled Iterative Design, and I'm Matt, that's Mike, and if you want to support us, come check us out on that, those Apple po- on that Apple podcast or whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. You can also check us out on the Patreon. We got like a $3 tier that will give you a shout out and we will uh, list a link to your to your website in our show notes. And the most important one is just to share us, tell everyone that we're here, ready to be listened to. And if you want to go a step further than that, you can come check out our Discord server. A very un uh, enthusiastic intro because I really need to write a new one and I forget every time until this moment. So that's what you get. So Mike, weekly pain point, please take it away. All right. Uh, weekly pain point for this week is DevOps. I don't like it. So, <laughs> All and, right. Uh, no, no, there I'm, is. I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. I'll go in a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more. So we've had a couple things. We've been working with Docker a lot uh, on my con- contract job, and that's been a pain. Like it's a great, it's a great service. Like amazing. If you know how to use it, it's amazing because it allows you to set up an entire development environment with essentially one line startup. Like Docker Compose up, your entire development environment, your database, your backend, uh, all the linking between them, your front end, everything gets built. Like you could still do live reloading, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. Setting it up. Whew. I know our contract, our contractor uh, that does the backend, he spent a good amount of time hitting his head against the wall, had to rewrite an entire Docker Compose script, the, the Docker file, like all the. Uh, anyway. He spent a long time doing it, but we have it up and running. Uh, we've tested it on a bunch of different devices, a bunch of different OSs. It's going well. We're going to be testing it on a de- uh, demo like server, on an actual server installation. So not only local environment, on a server, because that's the advantage with something like Docker is you're allowed, you're able to run the exact same environment on your test, like on your test server, on your local machine, and on your production server. So it's super easy to test and see if there's any issues. You don't have any permissions issues. Uh, between your servers, like I just did as well. That's another piece of the weekly pain point. Had a weird permissions issue where giving a file less permissions caused the API to work. Can't, couldn't explain. I don't, I don't know what it was. We, the again, only thing I could an- even think of off the top is the owner or the owner group. I, I gave it, it had, uh, so the file had read and write and modify permissions or whatever, like something like that, owner group permissions. And then I I removed the write permission and it worked. Same exact file. So I tested two. Is, like it, the is exact- it something weird like that? 
program doesn't want read or doesn't want write. I don't so know. It, it was it, a simple AP, like PHP file, a PHP <laughs> API. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, again, don't like DevOps. Don't like the backend server stuff. Get me the front end. Get me the Vue.js code. Get me the CSS, whatever, like just business logic. I don't want to deal with the backend. That's about it for me though. What about you, Matt? Uh, so as I said in my sneak preview, forgetting to write the re write, forgetting to rewrite the intro to the actual episode after our new musical intro uh, is my weekly pain point, and hopefully that'll make me remember. And next week will probably be my weekly pain point again. So as you as it were, uh, just that easy, I guess. <laughs> You had like a proper weekly pain point. I just don't know or don't know how to write down a to-do list apparently. Uh, but anyway, as we move on here, this is a, a me heavy episode. So I'm going to be touching on iterative design. I'm be touching on an introduction, just sort of talking about you know what get our bearings as to what I mean by this and what, uh, what my experience is with it and stuff like that. And then I'm going to be covering two subtopics and then a third sort of subtopic, but it's more personal one. So, um, the first one is going to be classical training is not required. Second one's going to be wireframes are your friend. And then the third one is just going to be me talking about my process, what I've been doing recently and have done in the past in terms of iterative design. So to jump right in here to the intro, um, over the years, as we iterate on things like software, a website, or even some things IRL or in real life, as they say, they generally get better with age. Now, I know some people are going to say that things are getting worse and all the rest of it, but in general, actually, things are getting much better. And this is because they're iterated upon over and over, taking what worked from, excuse me, what worked from the past and applying it now and into the future. So a prime, a prime, prime, prime example is if you're a gamer in any way and you go and play a game. Now, something Call of Duty has been pretty standard for quite a few years. So if we say, take another game, take... Take an RPG that you play. Take an Elder Scrolls game. And you go back... Actually, Fallout's probably a better example. So take a Fallout game. Take Fallout 4. Take all the all the improvements to the UI and stuff like that. Okay? And take the drawbacks. I know Mike's giving me a weird face. That's why I use this as an example. Take the, take the improvements and take the drawbacks. If you go back to Fallout 3, okay? When Bethesda took over the series. They did not have aim down sight... It was very much like Oblivion with guns, if you will. It was very much not a shooter. And 4 made it so you could aim down the sight. There's better aiming. There's better VATs. On PC especially, there's better frame rate. It looks better. I mean, I guess the frame rate on 3 was pretty good, but there was still some hiccups and stuff like that. I was playing on a modern PC. We're not going to get into the weeds of that. But point of the matter is, in general, that got better. But there's lots of argument to say... The speech got like the speech options got worse. The quest, the storytelling got worse, and people didn't. Some people didn't like the settlements. Leaving the settlements out because that's subjective. Because I really like it. If we're talking just about the storytelling, that's an example of something that it should have gotten better because the previous Bethesda games had really good storytelling, or at least good enough storytelling. Right? That's again subjective. But subject, like just straight up objectively, there's less choice and less whatever in Fallout Four. So that's something where they. They added voiced characters and they added that. So that's an improvement. They're like, hey, let's have a voice tree and have better conversation and have it so that the game doesn't pause when you talk to people, for example. But then they had the drawback of, oh, the storytelling took a hit. So there's always, you know, two steps forward, one step back or whatever it is, or whatever the hell it is, one step forward, two steps back, whatever the song is, 
It's sort of like that, except you are always climbing up. So now in the next game, right, Fallout 76 notwithstanding, that's a whole other thing, but not in the next game, okay, in the next single-player game, keeping it in the same sort of genre, they'll probably add more storytelling. But they might screw up the settlement building. They might screw up the... The guns or something, if, if there's another if there's another single-player Fallout game down the line, they might screw up the guns, or they might screw up the modding of the guns or something, right? So just just an example of, they're gonna they're pushing forward, 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 they get two or three good points, and then they get one big negative. But then you go forward, 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 if you go back to an old game today, of any type, not even a Fallout game, that game has worse UX, it has worse UX. There's, I'm sure there's some examples that you can say of the old game having a better UX, but new games have better UX. 100%, better controls, better UX, Papa John's. Like, 100%. 100%. So that, that's my point. So there are certainly, okay, just to reiterate, m- m- many missteps. There's many missteps that you can take along the way in which an iteration or a set of iterations, right? So maybe the next couple follows will have this problem. when they Where they pick up on the wrong message, so they, they see like a big... Like, ooh, a bunch of people like this. And then they go and they really, really push that in the next title. And so, for example, thinking, think of, uh, you know, they have data that says X component of this game or X component of this software or X component of this website is super popular because it has more clicks, it has more plays, it has more video streams, it has whatever it is. And they might think, oh, I'm going to put that, that thing, I'm going to put two of that component in the game. But maybe what made it cool was just the fact that it was a fad. Maybe what made it cool is that it was something that was timely. Maybe it was just a side thing, and that's what made it cool. And so that's a misstep, where they take the data, they apply it to the next iteration, and the iteration has a misstep, for example. And that, overall, that does hurt the product's image. But hopefully, you can rise above that by fixing the other parts of the game, better graphics, better whatever, in terms of a website. Maybe you're going from non-responsive to responsive. That's a huge step forward. But maybe now your nav menu is a little messed up. So now you have a negative thing in your nav menu, but your your responsivity is really high up there. So that's an example of that. Now, after a misstep, okay, if a product is still relevant, because a misstep can cause the series to die, it can cause the company to die, depending on how severe the misstep is. It can, of course, okay, be course corrected. So in the case of Fallout games, those things are still relevant. And so they can fix that storytelling in the next one. And in, in actuality, with 76's latest update, the storytelling and the voices and the actual, like, there's a way, way, way more conversational items. So they're already working on that, even though this is a multiplayer title and it's played differently. Okay. So things will generally continue to trend upward for a series, whatever it is. Okay. There might be one huge misstep that kills off a bunch of the good stuff, but that will generally continue going upward. So the reason why I bring this up, I know that kind of seems off topic, but the reason why I bring this up is because when we start a project, especially when it's for ourselves or even for a client, when we start a project, I kind of think that people think that it's in stone where you're like, I have to make these wireframes and then and or make these prototypes, depending on how you know crazy you're going with your design ideas. Some people want templates, some people, whatever. But it's not set in stone because even before it hits production, it's going to be iterated upon. So I'm going to dive into this. It's in the first subsection here to sort of try to narrow what this topic's about. So the first subsection here, classical training is not required. So I'm not classically trained. Mike's not classically trained in design, art. We didn't go to an art school. I took media arts in in, in high school, literally just to, just to get my art credit because I needed one and then got the heck out of there. And that was it. 
So I don't really have any, I don't have any classical training in this regard. Okay. So even without classical training in design, UI, UX, etc., you can still make use of iterative design and we do it. We do it. It's proof. We get paid for it. It's professional. It's professional enough clearly to get paid. So you might not know, okay, where to take a product's look correctly the first time. That's probably the biggest thing when it comes to this. It's almost like an imposter syndrome, right? Where you're thinking to yourself, I'm not classically trained. I don't know whether the border should be rounded. I don't know whether the border should be blue. Should the heading be bigger here? Should it be smaller here? Is this a subheading? You know, you don't know. But if you pay attention, okay, and this is really critical. If you pay attention to the UI and UX of the products that you use or that you've researched throughout starting this project, whatever you're doing, you know, you have a, you already have a half decent baseline. If you really paid attention to, if you were, if you were working on a, a menu, or a, a nav menu for, uh, what's a, what's a recent, a nav menu for a takeout restaurant. If you go and look at all of their competitors and you, you know, you, you see commonalities and you make notes and you know what you're in, and, and you, you know, you, you, maybe you've used fast food restaurants to order from them in the past. And so you have the personal experience. And now you have your research experience. You have a really good baseline that you can use to iterate over time. Sure. You don't know whether things should be blue or this should be red or whatever, but you know generally like, oh, we should have one order button. We shouldn't have four order buttons. That's confusing. Stuff like that, right? You already know how to do that. So the most important thing is when you're starting out is just solely to get the UI to be functional, okay? Get as many of the elements that you can on the page or on the website or whatever you're building, get it, get it in there right away. And what that does is it's like... It's almost like adding tools to your toolkit. So you're adding like, okay, now I have my headings. I have my subheadings. I'm pulling my data from my API. Now I have my data there. And Mike's stream is a prime example of this, where he's pulling in the data now. He doesn't have all this dummy data trying to figure out whether his box shadows should, should look prettier. He's pulling in all the data. He's pulling in all the rest of it. Stuff like that. Check out our Twitch, twitch.tv channel. A little self-plug in there. But anyway, the point is, is get everything in there. So now you have all these tools. And you might notice while you're doing it, you might notice, hey, like, like, hey, like this, this title looks like crap, but it's good enough. Like, you know, people know it's a title right now and whatever. Don't be afraid to, to tell yourself, and, and it literally is, that this is a draft, okay? Don't be afraid that, don't be afraid to design something ugly because it is a draft, okay? You don't have to design the, you know, the best UI, the most perfect UI the first time. As you build, as you add these pieces, so if we take a, a standard blog, title, byline, and body. Let's just say that you get that on the page. Now you're going to be like, well, maybe that title will be nicer centered. Ah, it looks like crap. Right aligned. No, it looks like crap. Okay. Go back to left. That's an iteration. You don't even think of it when those tools are there, but imagine if you just put the title in, you're just starting, you just put your title in. Now you're in trouble, right? Because you're going to be like, should it be center? Right aligned, left line. No, right. Looks good. Then you're going to add your byline and be like, well, now it looks like crap. Should that be right aligned with the title? You're going to start worrying before you've even put the information in. But you're going to feel so much more accomplished when you have your title, your byline, and your and your your blog post coming in dynamically or however else you're doing it. And you're like, wow, now this is a functioning page. But that looks like crap. Let me fix that. Those are iterations. And I feel like people really don't take advantage of or really pay attention to the fact that iterations like that are super, super critical. They think an iteration is something like, oh, I went from, you know, Times New Roman on my site. And it wasn't responsive. And then the the only iteration that happened was that I went to Calibri, the talking font types. 
Calibri, and now it's responsive, and now it like wraps with a, with a smaller screen, or wraps with a larger screen a different way, or however else you're making it responsive. People people think that that's the only iteration when it, that isn't the case. You do, and I do, or rather I I should say I do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, not even joking, on of iterations on a page. I'll move the the social menus to the left. I'll add a border. I don't like the border. Oh, let's add let's add it to the right. Oh, it actually looks good with the border. Oh, the border shouldn't be on the left; it should be on the right. Like we're already talking two, three, four iterations, and all I'm doing is quickly like changing things. Usually in the inspect element, those are actually iterations, and you're just like, nope, this looks dumb, right aligned. We're not doing that. We're not touching it. So get as many things as you can onto the page, and then start iterating, only a little bit. So I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna touch on that. So. Look at your layout, your first layout, in this case, talk, obviously talking about websites, as your first pass, okay? And don't obsess over making major changes before stepping back for a while, okay? So while you're thinking, or while you're rather placing things, feel free to make small iterations that clearly look out of place or just look terrible. Maybe the, the headings aren't wrapping. Okay, fix that. Maybe there needs to be padding. It just looks horrible. Do that, of course, right? But don't spend a lot of time, in my opinion, don't spend a lot of time messing around with these small changes, some of the best things that I've come up with, some of the best UI layouts I've come up with is I put it all together, I put it in, it looks, you know, presentable enough. I can read everything, nothing's crashing into each other. You know, I don't have a pink heading and then like a, a blue thing at the bottom with then like a red thing that's like awkwardly overlapping with like a green thing flying in. Like I don't have, you know, all this craziness. It looks clean, concise, but it might be, it doesn't look modern enough to you or something. Best thing in my opinion is to do is just to walk away and maybe come back the next day or like take a break and come back. Because no matter what it is, you might think that your UI looks like crap. And I've said this to Mike several times, or I'll show him something, and I'll be like, this header looks like crap. And you didn't even think about the header. You were thinking about the footer kind of had a weird alignment or something. So Mike's sort of like the, the first user test, for example, right? Sort of a, a, a prime user test. And so then then I start thinking to myself like, oh, damn, yeah, the footer is kind of weird. And then I start working away at the footer, and I've completely forgotten about that header. And maybe I'll come back to it later, but... Things that are glaring to me, the person who put it together, may not be glaring to the people. And also, it's because I have my head buried in the work. And so, I'm not really I'm not really the best person to ask when I'm freshly from having my head buried into, you know, pulling in all the data, making sure I have all the data, all the rest of it. I need to step back and kind of let my brain reset or, like, relax. I'm not a doctor, clearly, but let it do its thing and then come back with a fresh pair of eyes and be like, oh... You know, that heading actually looks okay. Maybe it just needs some padding on the right. Something I would never have come up with normally, right? That Those type of things. So to me, do those little iterations. Don't worry about the big stuff. If you're in your draft or you're in your first pass or you're in even in your second draft, however many drafts you want to do of your of your site or of your UI, just let it be a draft. Like, let it look like crap. I keep high contrast, high brightness colors in my designs for a long time. If I want to make sure divs aren't clashing, they go, they be, they're red. One's red, one's blue, one's green. And I just do it. And it's like, oh, these divs are kind of crashing. It's going to maybe cause problems on responsivity. I fix it. And I leave those in until the end of the first draft oftentimes, or at least to the point where I'm like, okay, I now I'm putting in actual like stock photos or maybe the actual photos themselves of the content. This red, blue, green looks like crap. I'm just going to take it out. Oh, look, now I need more padding, right? So each, each one of those changes is super critical. So don't be afraid to just Throw something in there like a crappy red color just so you can see it easier. This is a draft. Play with it. Make sure make sure it looks good at the end, not right now. So the second thing is going to be the second big one for me anyway, is that wireframes are your friend. 
So a lot of our um, a lot of our customers, what we'll do for them is oftentimes, I mean, what customer doesn't want a discount? And so in order to do that, we won't do an actual prototype. We'll just do um, a wireframe. We won't do like a full, you know, here's the font type and here's this and here's that. We just sort of make more or less do a wireframe, and that'll that you know saves them a bunch of money because it saves us from doing a bunch of work. So we're not charging the hourly or whatever you want to call it. So that part of the package deal or the hourly is gone. So we only do wireframes. And what this really taught me is that if you're struggling with your design layout, even on the first pass, okay, or if the project is really large, like it's just like you know really hard for you to kind of comprehend all at once. So many pages or lots of elements per page or whatever, wireframes are an absolute must. Even if you only do one iteration of wireframes, I usually do two or three types of wireframes on paper. And then I put them, I put the one I like the most digitally. And then I kind of tweak it there a little bit. And then I start building wireframes are super, super helpful because what you do is you don't, you don't have to treat them because they're wire, They're just wireframes. You don't have to treat them like you don't have to treat them like something that's written in stone. A prototype feels more official, right? It feels more like you need to do it like this. And if you're working in an agency in which a design team has put together that prototype and you need to make it that way, then that's one thing. But because Mike and I are in charge of our own projects in most cases, we actually don't don't do it and the wireframe because it's like a draft it looks like a draft it looks like a something that you do in the beginning you don't have to treat it so crazily the wireframe might have a fully centered background image across the whole thing and then when i put it in there and i actually do it it might look it might look stupid like really stupid or maybe it looks great with the stock photo but the instant i pull in the, the customer's images things are getting cut off and maybe I need to, you know, shorten it, change the aspect ratio a bit. And now it's just like a top page header, you know, where it's like 60, 65% of the height or something rather than 100% of the height. So I don't need to follow that wireframe so strictly. So that's already an iteration. But the wireframe got me there. That's the point. The wireframe told me you need a header, this, this, this. You need to have this full screen image. I do it and it's like, damn, that looks like crap. I need to go back and fix it. And just my own personal mental thing. I don't care that I'm changing the wireframe because the wireframe feels so elementary because it is, it's designed to be that way. And some people might want to go back and redo their wireframes. You know, that's to each their own. I don't do that. I don't care unless I'm really changing everything. And it's like, Whoa, I got to go back and like, like this design looks horrible completely. Then sure. I'll go back. But if I'm just doing iterations like that, changing the height of stuff, maybe making some stuff center line when it was left in the wireframe, the heck with it. I'm not doing that. So in general, just to sort of recap, you know, wireframes let you choose the general layout of your elements without worrying about the colors, the typography, all the rest of it. You put in all your stuff. You put in, you know, there's going to be a background image here. There's going to be my nav bar up here. You might even just put the, put the word nav bar. <laughs> like I do that. Just put the word nav bar. And then I, I have another wireframe that just shows the actual nav bar itself type of thing. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about colors. You don't have to worry about the aspect ratios too much. You don't have to worry about any of that type of stuff. You just kind of put it together. And even if your wireframes are kind of rough, as wireframes kind of generally are, and I know there's a conflict where it's like some people want a perfect wireframe. I get it. And I do the same thing. I use all the centering tools and you know all the rest of it where I try to make it pixel perfect. But to the point is, if you're using this just as your draft helper, like just don't do that. That's just a waste of time because you're just going to change that crap anyway. If you're showing it to a client, then yes, my wireframes look nice. They're lined up. They have, they have labels and all that. Just a quick aside there. But anyway... Um, so even if your wireframes are kind of rough, they'll still serve as a starting point so you can get through your first pass quicker. You, the, 
you'll get in there and your first draft will be 65% complete maybe in a day rather than three, four, five days, right? That's how quick it might get, okay? And when you start putting together your UI, you might notice some, some you know, just just glaring issues with, with your wireframe. Feel free, as I've said, to adjust those now in the UI itself and continue working away. Don't feel loyal to your wireframe if it isn't working. Your wireframe is, even a, even a prototype, okay? A wireframe or a prototype Especially if it's your project and you're allowed to do it. I know web agencies, you know, you can't be changing the person's art the, or the art team's art without asking or wh- however that works. But if you're working for your own thing, you there's been several times where a client asks us for something like, I want a form on this page. And I, I do it and I try it and I iterate and I iterate and I iterate. And it looks like, like it looks bad. It looks like crap. So I think to myself, well, what do they want this form here for? Well, they want more actionables. Okay, well, I'll put an actionable here and call a form in or it'll go to another contact page or something. And then I will explain to them explicitly, I did not put a form here. It looked bad. I can do it for you if you'd like, but it looked bad. This is my professional opinion. This is where it should work. Acknowledge that what they asked for from a place where like, obviously they don't make UIs and websites for a living. So like, you know, better, right? In general. So you might say, Hey, I, you know, I kind of figured you guys wanted a call to action here. So I did put a call to action here, but the form is on another page because this page is too damn cluttered. And sometimes they'll fight back and say, put it on there. You just put it on there and then who cares? But some, but oftentimes I'm going to say at least 60, 70% of the time, they'll either give in fully or a bit where they'll be like, you know, you're right. Why don't we have a, why don't we have the form hidden? You click, you know, expand and it shows up something like that. Right. So don't be afraid to sort of, assuming you're allowed to sort of not argue, but sort of debate items like that. Now, uh, I have a note here to say, to describe my process. I kind of already done it. Uh, to be honest. So I'm just going to kind of let Mike take off with any of his comments. Yeah. So yeah, the reason that I waited till the very end of this is that I have quite a bit to say um, on this topic and just this whole concept. We've been talking about iterations of this concept, uh, if you will, for a lot of episodes, because I think the whole point of iterative design, the whole point of this kind of concept to actually get something on a page, to get something done, to get a first pass, to get multiple passes to look at, is to is it's actually very conducive to getting a project done. A lot of the time when you're starting a project, uh, especially if it's a complicated web application, especially if it's a complicated, you know, back end, front end system, it has a lot, it has a lot of moving parts. You're going to get stuck in the weeds of trying to make all your systems perfect to show a potential client that's never seen your product. And that's where people, that's where a lot of projects die because you're going to be stuck arguing with your backend developers. You're going to be stuck arguing with yourself. You're going to be stuck arguing with everyone else about how to make a system perfect when the reality is you can't on your first iteration. And that's why it's important when you're making a, whether it's a web page or a web app, I'm going to talk more about web app that has like a more complex functionality because that's something that I'm doing currently. When it's important, it's important when you're creating something for a specific audience to get it in front of that audience as quickly as possible. And that's where this iterative design helps. Whether it's a wireframe that you're building, as soon as you have something that you think it composes all the elements that you would believe that a user would use, you have to show them it. And that's why it's important to be able to be flexible in this iterative design process, to be able to build on feedback, to not take feedback one-to-one to mean changes, like Matt was saying, push back with your own knowledge uh, in, a, in a respective way. That's what this whole process is all about. So we're working right now on a big on a big project 
uh, where it has a lot of moving parts. We're trying to like, we're building a web app that will potentially be used by like, you know, thousands of stores, essentially. This project is big. It's a newer project. We're building on a design that we've kind of already already have used before, but it's still a very big project, a lot of new moving parts, and we got stuck in the weeds, like our, no no doubt about it, because of how big it is. And we were we're kind of we were moving forward, we we're iterating a little bit, but we weren't moving fast enough. So what we did was we picked one specific client that we we could build for, and we're building something for them, knowing knowing that most of what we're building now will have to change. So again, it will be iterated on. Like you have to know that. When you're building something, know your first pass isn't going to cut it. Like it, as as perfect as you think it is, it's just not going to do it because unless you're a genius and you can read people's minds, you're never going to nail it on the first try. So you're going to have to go get your first pass out as quickly as possible so that it's functional to what you think is functionality and have that conversation with the people that are going to be using it. Take that feedback, iterate, do it again, do it again, do it again until you see something where people see it and they light up when they're using it and they see the potential. They, they, they see where, okay, they see the functionality you have now. And then they start telling you like ABC, what, like how awesome this is. And then like, you know, what would be even awesomer. Like we need to like, you know, add this to it, add this to it. I'd pay this much to get this there. You'll see that in, in, during the design process, whether it be a website again, in a website, it's a little bit different because it's not as complex, but even in that stage, like a lot of the time, the first time you show someone a website, they'll, they'll be like, Oh, okay, that's cool. But I, I, I want this, this, and this change. That's 90%. Like, what would you say, Matt? Most of the projects that we do, we have the first pass that we show the the client, they'll come back and say something. Oh, it, almost always, almost yeah. always. And yes. and the best thing about that is, is when you get familiar with a, with a client, as we have, um, we have some like repeat clients, they'll actually expect that now. And that's like a part of the process where I'm like, I literally say to them, Hey, this is, I call them, I call, I tell them it's my first pass, you know, maybe my personal 10th, but it's my first one I'm showing them. And then they'll say, yeah, 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 I really like this. You know, like, great job. All the pages are done. Let's add these 30 things. But I know that's coming, right? And 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 they knew it was coming too. And that way it's not this, like, oh my God, the deadline. Oh my God. You know, and everyone's freaking out. It's like, you could put this product out and just iterate on it because people love updates, right? And they know that too. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you shouldn't be afraid of iteration. If you're going into a project thinking that you're going to build something perfect on the first pass, I'd say don't do that project. It's unfortunate, but you have to be willing to iterate. You have to be willing to take in, whether it be analytics, so you could put put out a product, put something out there, an MVP, something something that works. And then look at the analytics. How are people using it? Talk to your customers, et cetera, et cetera. Get all the information that you can. Take that information. And this is where the hard part is. When you have a lot of information, like when you have analytics, when you have testimonials, when you have one-on-one sessions with like clients, when you have all this, what do you take from those from all that information and how do you implement it to make your app better? And that's what like at the start of this whole conversation, what Matt was saying, uh, you know, with uh, with Fallout 4 or and follow three to follow four, there was a few missteps, but there was a lot that, that it was building on. Like it was, it was doing really well. It's because they had a lot of information from a lot of different sources. So for instance, they had DLC, right? They had a bunch of little DLC that they added into fallout four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
right? And what the, what the information they got there is a lot of games are doing that. Their, their investors, their board told them, we need this. That's a part of the analytics. Like that's a part of the process. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the iterative process. They got that information. They're like, okay, so we should put it in there. But then all of a sudden there's an outcry of people also yelling that they don't want that. Yep. So now you have to balance like, who do we listen to? And it's the same thing with web app. Like you're going to have the same kind of situation with web apps. Uh, if you're building something for a client, the client will be like, well, we need to monetize this. Right. That's part of the process of, in iteration. Uh, and then the client, the actual customers of that app will tell you that we will, we don't want to pay it, whether they they tell you that, like, you know, by saying it or they just don't pay for it. Those are the thing. Those, that's the kind of analytics that you're getting there. And then maybe and you see this a lot with applications, you'll go to a different kind of monetization because you'll iterate on the monetization itself. Everything should be iterative. When a project works, it's because there's a million iterations. Almost all my projects, now that I'm thinking about it, the first pass was never, it's not out there. Like, I don't, th- I don't think there's a single application that I've developed that has a majority of the first passes code and UI out there. It's always iterated upon. Now, the structure, the base functionality, stuff like that, yes. That kind of stuff is still present in a lot of applications. Not everyone, but most of my applications have the base functionality present. Because it was flushed out in, in research. Exactly. But everything else, all the little, like, you know, UI tweaks, stuff like that, all that happens and it's still happening. It's consistently happening. If you want to make a good product, you're going to be iterating on it for a long, long time while you have clients, essentially, because it needs change. That's a, that, that's a really good way to put it, honestly. The, the DLC thing is, is a really good way to put it because I'm not going to get into the weeds of, of you know, because some, some of you aren't gamers out there, but there's sort of, there's a, a settlement building mechanic in the game that is totally, to, totally a, an aside thing. And there were some DLCs for that. And then people were like, hey, I don't like the settlement building. You know, it's an aside thing. It's a new thing in this game. I don't like it. I want more story. So then they go and then they make something that's sort of, because they make, different scales of them there's like a one big dlc and then a smaller dlc and there's like you know whatever they try to maximize their season pass so they so then they release a smaller story dlc you know where you can build robots and that type of thing so you're getting a little bit of the building in there but not settlement building but like a little bit of like the innovation in there but you did a story to get to get that point so it's like okay you know that's for those people and then they release like and then they release, you know, another, you know, set the, among the settle, settlement builders, they get to the point where they want automation. And so they're like, hey, you know, I've been building and I don't want to keep crafting this crap. I want factories literally to do it. So then they release the DLC that way. And then you have people complain, hey, that's too much settlement building. Like, what the hell? Like, that's a big settlement update. So then they release Far Harbor and that's a huge story thing. But that also iterated that there's a huge, there's a huge choice in Far Harbor that you have to make. And in my opinion, it's like that. I'm, I'm not an internal person at Bethesda, but from my outside looking in, it looks to me like they said, oh, people want more choice and they want the choice to be bigger and they want it to be more interesting. Okay, here's Far Harbor. Here's, you know, almost all story, a massive story, a cool location, more exploration, more of that, little bit of settlement building, optional, totally optional. And that's it. And so they're even iterating among their product's life because a game sort of hits an end unless it's a games as a service and then bang. And then it goes, you know, that's it. Fallout 4 is complete. Moving on to the next project. So 
even though it was like sort of a finite, they had an idea of a finite amount of thing. They were even, you know, playing that balancing game where it's like, hey, here's for the settlement builders. Oh, here this. Hey, I don't like that. I want a story. Here's a little bit of story. Oh, okay. Here's some more settlement. Hey, what the hell? Oh, here's more story. You know, they're going back forth, back forth, back forth. And that's what's really cool about it. Where there's no way, and, and like actually no way, any game, any product, website, anything, like Mike said, would ever be as good if it just did one pass. Do you know what's do you know what's close to one pass? Leaked things. If you looked up, like if you see uh leaked video games, I'm a big gamer, obviously, but leaked games that were never meant to be released. You know, it was leaked from the studio and the studio got shut down. That's close to the first pass or as close to the first pass as you're going to get. Those games are glitchy. They, they look weird. They're clunky. The mechanics don't make sense. They're not balanced. The list goes on and depends on how far it was in there. But that's as close to the first pass as you're going to get. And you don't want that to be the retail product. You need this iterative design. You need it every time. It's it's it, It's actually... You're probably going to see it. Well, you, or, I mean, we're seeing it. On, I was going to say, we were, you're going to see it live on our Twitch stream. But, like, you're literally seeing it. Because why would you worry about the box shadow when you're worried about pulling in the attack values? You know, th- that box shadow, yeah, it matters. But you need that attack value or the app is useless. Pull in the attack value, do that. Now you can screw around. Now you can make it centered or wrap it or, like, whatever you want to do. Now you're able to do that. And it's just, it, it does matter a bunch. Exactly. And like a big thing, like with, with the Twitch stream on, on that, on that topic is I focused on one thing to make the functionality there. The UI was a very secondary focus for me. Like I spent a little bit of time on it, but it was a very secondary focus on for me. I will start focusing on the UI. Uh, someone during the Twitch stream brought up a good point that I can use a UI framework and I'll be implementing that. And I wouldn't have done that if I didn't, if I just tried to do everything at once, I wouldn't have got that great piece of feedback and I would have spent a bunch of time creating my own UI framework for no reason. Because again, this project that I'm making on, on Twitch is just for example purposes and myself and maybe some friends and stuff like that. Those kinds of things are what UI frameworks are built for. So it was a good, it was a good suggestion. And again, I took that suggestion using it to do an inter- iterative process with it. That's, I think, the concept of this, of this idea is, again, get something out there as quickly as possible and iterate on that. Get something usable, obviously. You don't want to get garbage that is not usable and that has no idea, no base to it. Like no, you don't want to get something out there where the the user doesn't understand what it is. They need to understand what it is and they need to see the potential. That's the greatest thing is that when you show them something that you know has potential that you've created and then the user tells you what they want because they're so excited about the prospects of this project and you're going to get that that's very valuable information so that i think that's the main idea with iterative design on every level whether it be ui javascript projects gaming whatever and 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 just as a general note as well is think about uis on anything you use windows on websites on whatever if you notice back in the day and i mean like windows 95 windows 98 those days those days people were applying themes to their windows left right and center I remember seeing like a Pluto theme and I remember seeing computer screens with like Pluto ears or Mickey ears or whatever. Those technologies like because Windows and just computing in the home was sort of in its infancy at that point. And so it starts in excess, if you will, where people are like, yeah, I want to theme this and that type of thing. And that that still happens today. But if you look at the like the generic sort of the generic or the, the, the more mainstream sort of releases, even though Windows without a theme in the Windows 98 days was pretty slimmed down, 
it's slimming down even now. It's slimming down and somehow adding functionality if you think of it. If you think about Windows Windows today and then think about Windows Windows in, in you know, Windows 98, in terms of the UI, I'm not going to get into the processes and the locations and crap that run. I'm not going to get into that. But if you think about Windows 98 to today, the complexity of Windows really hasn't changed from the consumer perspective specifically. From a person who's not techie, all they do is show up, they sign into all their things, they click the E or, or the little whoosh, depending on what edge they have, and then that's it. They don't really do anything else. They might like the fact that their photos sync. That, that's a very complex addition to something like Windows 98 or from Windows from that era, from the Windows 98 era. That is a very complex addition, but it, it isn't complex for the user. They sign in, they, you know, they sign in with their OneDrive, they move on. Having you sign into your Windows with your Microsoft account is an extremely complex addition in comparison to the Windows 98 system. I didn't even have a password until Windows 7 on my computers, my personal computers. Now I'm signing in with a friggin' cloud account that, that syncs all my stuff. Every computer I log into has its own wallpapers and all that, but you notice how it's all in the background. The UI, the UX has been iterated upon so much that they know that consumers don't want to fidget. They don't want to fiddle. They don't want to put these themes on. Like, you know, they, they, the support is there because there is some people that do it and it's easy enough to have. But in general, people want the gray or the black or whatever color on their UI. Like, for example, I have um, red, like from my Outlook.com account. It, it, it literally asked me as I was in the beta. It was like, what's your favorite color? Red. And ever since then, all my Windows and all my Xbox and everything... All I do is sign in and it themed it red. I never chose that and I like it because I'm like red. You know what I mean? Like, look how simple that was for me. Click this red tile. Oh, yeah, I like red for my for my, for my my mail client. Now everything's red. And that's exactly what I would have wanted but didn't think of. But that's so complex from back in the day. But to the consumer, it's not complex. It's It, it really isn't. Some areas, I'm sure you could bring up some examples. But look how many things we do online today. Like there's a there's a laundry list of things or a shopping list or I don't know what they, they say do they say laundry list or shopping list laundry list laundry list I don't understand why it's a laundry list anyway probably an old fashioned thing that's, anyway that yeah I guess but uh, hit us up on tw- on Instagram let me know why that what that means but um, there is like literally like a laundry list of things that we do on our phones every day that if we didn't have phones wouldn't be done it's not like I'm you know, it's not like these tasks are something that I moved from the physical world to my phone. But we actually do a bunch of stuff every day on this thing now. And that didn't exist even for me like five, six years ago. I never cared. Now it's like, oh man, I gotta like have this all this UX crap on my phone and stuff like this. But like, look how complex the tasks I'm doing every day. You know? So that's just that's just what I'm that's just what I'm getting at there. Is over time, UI, UX of everything is getting better, 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 better. Another prime example is 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 in, in terms of uh, c- cars. My car is from an older era. You can literally see it. Like, it has an older era. Like, you know, it's just, that's the way it is. But now cars all have screens. They got Bluetooth. They got freaking headphone jacks, USB ports, all the rest of it. All for convenience. You could say, oh, now I got to bring a, you know, a cable and now I got to do all this. But look how complex of a task you're doing just by bringing a cable. You're now moving all your contacts to your car, maybe. Maybe, depending on, again, it's the car support. But maybe you're using Android Auto. Maybe you're doing this. So, yeah, you added something to your list, bring this cable. But you're actually doing like a hundred tasks with that one task, for example. Look how smooth that is. Trying to get your contacts loaded into a car 
10, 15 years ago and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I have a friend who still has their car from 10 years ago. It was a pretty high-end car at the time. Their their car loads the contact list. I'm not joking. I didn't understand what that meant for the first like three, four years they had it. I was like, loading your contact list? Like, isn't this a vehicle? Like, what are you talking about? And now it's like, oh yeah, I got in my car and I had not one one assist and like, you know, the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I get into the car as all this crap, in it, you know, as all this nine one one assist is on, crash detection is on, on star, like whatever else you have. Look at how much complexity we're doing with just a little bit of stuff, and that's because of iterative design. Yep, exactly. Big big rant. You, but... you nailed it. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good rant. Um, but yeah, with I think with that uh, we. I think we covered iterative design really well. Should we move on to the web news? Yes, sir. Let's move it on. Let's do it. So web news this week is going to be a little bit different. We're going to try something a little new. Uh, We have been asked to do this before, and I just this time decided to do it. So what we're going to be doing is looking at the top 10 JavaScript open source Git repos of May 2020. So... I've kind of taken a quick look at them. I don't think Matt has looked at them at all, so he'll be hearing about them for the first time for the most part. Um, a quick warning, a lot, like some of the stuff that I'm going to be saying is probably going to be incorrect because I don't know all the technologies that every single one of these repos is going to be using, but I'll try my best. So stay with me, please. We're so, pretty much, we're pretty much as a disclaimer, we're window shopping through these. We are not professionals. We haven't used all of these and there might exactly, be some incorrect yeah. information. Please do your own research. Absolutely. Yeah, there's going to be some incorrect information, no doubt. But we'll try our best to explain what each one of them is as far as we understand it. So first one here is reveal.js, which is an open source HTML presentation framework, and it enables anyone with a web browser to create presentations for free. Now, what I understand, and I took a quick look at this, uh, it allows you to embed a presentation maker or a presentation into your website. So you can create kind of like a, you know, PowerPoint or Google Slides presentation and have that as part of your HTML code. And it'll do all the animations for you. It'll do a bunch of the, you know, structure of it for you. And it's like, it's responsive on like right off, right off the bat. And the other cool thing, and I think this is why it's for developers for the most part, is that it does code highlighting. So when you're, if you're, if you're a, you know, a develop, a development company or something like that, and you're trying to highlight some of the code that you're going to be showing to, you know, to whatever, to executives, maybe you have like a, you want a presentation embedded on your website that you can send to your executives that they can go through and take a look at, you know, just to see what, what's going on. And you can update that presentation monthly or something like that, whatever use case you can think of, but that's one. And you want to embed some code into that presentation in something like, I don't know, uh, in something like Google Slides, you would either have to take a picture of code and put it in there, or you would have to use very basic code structures, or you would have to do all the syntax highlighting yourself, which would be a really big you know, uh, thing to have to do. With this, it has syntax highlighting built in for a bunch of different languages. Um, I think it's using like a highlight.js package, like an open source package for it, but it looks really good. That's a big plus for me because what you can do there is if you're sending it to like a developer, for instance, they can go in and actually copy and paste that code right out of the presentation. They don't have to, you know, rewrite it again and stuff like that. And another cool feature of that code syntax highlighting that I saw was you can actually, not only will it, you know, automatically syntax 
and highlight all the lines, it'll actually allow you to highlight specific lines and put emphasis on them. So let's say you need to, you know, show the an important line inside of a for loop or something, you can actually put emphasis on that line just automatically kind of through with the framework. So it seems pretty cool. Uh, would I use it right now? Like I don't really have anything to use it for, uh, but it's definitely something I'll keep in the back of my mind if I ever need to like embed essentially a power presentation inside my website. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The other day, actually, I <laughs> uh, was looking at, and I found out there's, since another way to do this but uh so i twitch stream games here and there and um one of the things i was trying to do was think of a way because i also do uh like a fair bit of virtual photography in the photo modes and i like 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 messing around with those modes and i have like a bunch of pretty good well toot my own horn here but i have a bunch of pretty good screenshots uh of games and i was thinking that would be cool on my twitch stream to instead of having a static you you know stream starting soon or whatever or even for our stream it'd be nice to have sort of a rolling presentation of the of the photos. And so I thought, oh, that'd be cool to have it fade in and out in the background. But then I was thinking to myself, what's the best way to really put this together? You know, usually when you have a project, you're thinking, I'm going to build a website or I'm going to build an app. In this case, I was just like, I don't even know what this is. Is this a slideshow? Is this a, what is this? And there is an OBS functionality for it, I found out, which I haven't tried out but yet. But something like this, I'm sure would fill a bunch of different weird use cases like that, where it's like, I just need something in the background. Um, a kiosk that isn't one that people work with. So just a digital sign. If you needed something real basic, if you were a small business, this is right there. Bang. You know, oh, we have sales. Add add your slides, upload it, whatever you do to this thing. Bang. There you go. Now it's on your, I, I, there's a couple businesses in town that you just use laptops, just laptops, old ones on loop. And they just have their advertisements and stuff like that while you're waiting for help. And this would be perfect for them, I think. Now that you've mentioned it, <laughs> we do have a project where we are showing kind of like a kiosk advertisement uh, application. I wonder if this would be good for that. Like, I wonder what the overhead on this kind of thing is, but I really like the animations on it. And I like the flexibility. I wonder. I'm. You know what? I'm. I, I take it back. I might actually look into this professionally. Like, I might actually... Damn. I might I might use this in a in a project. You know, as another another good use case is uh, cons. So if you're going to cons, like people will just have their iPad that they use normally, and they'll put that on their on their display. You know, whether they're an outdoor convention, a, a gaming convention, whatever. Once humans are able to come in contact once again in large groups, uh, to be clear, uh, once those cons you know come back to life, the physical ones will people have iPads and stuff like that that show slideshows. Obviously, there's solutions out there for that, but this might be just something that somebody might get a little more use case out of, might get just a little more, especially if they know how to build websites. If you know, if you're at a, a tech con and you know how to build websites and you have a little bit of familiarity with it, this might be just the thing you need or would want. Yeah, to add some like cool, ex- just some effects yeah, to no. your table. Just have iPads facing outward, so then you know people can come by and they see it, or maybe you went to lunch and your iPad is hopefully bolted to the to the table. You know, whatever. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that actually uh, actually kind of exciting for me right now. Um, gonna look look more into it. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. So next thing here uh, is something that I don't have a lot of experience with. So we'll probably kind of go over it quickly. Is WS, which is a simple to use, fast and thoroughly tested WebSocket client and server implementation for Node.js. From what I understand, I, lo- I took a quick look at this. Essentially, it'll give you a really easy way to establish a WebSocket. 
connection to a different website or to your backend service or what or to your to your front end service and allow for you know real time communication. I think WebSockets are used in like chat applications and stuff like that. So I think this is just making that stuff easier to implement. So with that being said, next thing here is kind of interesting to me right now. Uh, and again, on topic to my Twitch stream that I'm doing is fuse.js, which is a lightweight fuzzy search, interesting term, in JavaScript with zero dependencies. What the hell is a fuzzy search? Yes, that was my exact first question. Uh, a fuzzy search is something where you're not matching a one-to-one string. You're matching for patterns and close to strings. Right. So you're, it's actually kind of like, okay, uh, g- give me a second here. This is, I'm actually going to go into it and, uh, and tell you what they say about it. So this is, I, I was interested in what, what it meant. Well, let me ask you a question here. So the very first yeah. thing popped in my mind before you say the actual thing, see if it matches. Very first thing that popped in my mind is Google Assistant. You can kind of, you can type to it and it, it, it will be contextual or virtual assistants in general will be contextual based on the device you're asking slash the device where you are. Or what you're doing. Like, I can just say, play, and it knows, oh, there's something playing on the TV, and I need... Or it's something paused on the TV, and I need to play it. So that's sort of a fuzzy search, because play could mean play my playlist. It could mean anything, you know? Mm-hmm. could mean play a game. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that's kind of where it's at. So essentially what it is, is approximate string matching. Okay. So it'll give you... So if you type in something close to, like, if you, you know, you're searching for monkey and you type in money i believe that will give you that that will still return a monkey oh and it might it might learn like if you if people are constantly misspelling if if people are constantly misspelling smartwatch i don't know why it would do that but if people are constantly misspelling it on the fossil site if they hypothetically had a fuzzy search and you just type in s watch something then it might be like, oh, that means smartwatch, and then that's like a fuzzy search where it will show up, and if there was an AI behind it to an extent, or a learning algorithm, it would machine yeah. learn that that's what should be returned. Yeah, uh, something like that, I think. The big thing with this one, uh, it's fuse.js, is that you can do it without a backend. So a lot of the time, what you'll to be able to do something like approximate string matching, you'll need something like an Elasticsearch backend or an Algolia backend. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I've only ever seen it or heard of it a couple of times. But one of the like one of those two is a backend service that you can buy. It's usually costs money. I think there are free versions of it to a certain degree, but usually costs money and you need to set it up on your Node.js installation or PHP, whatever, uh, and set it up so that every time you do a search of your database, it'll have to go through the backend, go through the Elasticsearch, and then return the results. This Fuse.js is can be done fully on the front end. It can still be done on the back end, of course, but it's kind of a really lightweight, easy way of implementing it. So why I mentioned that it was part of the kind of the Twitch stream uh, is that I am actually doing something similar. Now, I'm not doing approximate string matching. I am doing one-to-one string matching, but it is pretty flexible in the sense that where you can type in one word and it'll search the entire object that I want it to search. So it's not going to search just like, you know, the name. It'll search for a bunch of different fields. But having said that, if this is easy to implement, I might actually do a one-to-one comparison on the Twitch stream. And again, that's twitch.tv slash HTML, the things. Uh, check it out. Subscribe to that. I, I, I'm i going to say it right now. I'm going to be the next next time live stream is going to be uh, Thursday. And it's going to be the 18th of June at around 8 p.m. Eastern. 2020. 
2020. Yes, exactly. So I know people are going to be listening to this all over the place. You can, again, if, if you have listened to this uh, and it's a long time from now, you can check it out. I believe everything will be archived on YouTube at HTML, all the things. Correct. So it kind of encompasses everyone. You can check it out. You'll see it. Uh, you'll be seeing the future because I don't even know what's going to happen. So this is something that I might actually use in the current live stream that I'm doing. Kind of cool. So next thing here is Test Cafe, another quick one that I'm going to run through. Uh, it's a Node.js tool to automate end-to-end -end web testing. So you write tests in JavaScript or TypeScript and run them. The reason that I'm going to run through this quickly is because I don't really have a lot of experience with uh, web end-to-end -end testing. It's something that I've been meaning to really you know jump on because there is a lot of applications out there that I need to start testing. And right now we're kind of doing it manually. We have some manual tests going on. We have written tests, like what we need to test, but we don't have it automated. It's something that I really need to look into. So maybe when I do look into it, I'll look at Test Cafe because it seems uh, pretty straightforward, pretty simple to start with. So next thing here is AJV, uh, which is a fast Java JSON schema validator for Node.js and the browser. So this one's kind of cool. Um, validation of JSON is pretty important because if you're getting sort, like if, you, if, you're a, if your uh, a app needs to get data from multiple sources that are constantly changing, what you need to be able to do is make sure that the data that you're getting from those sources, if it is JSON, is correct so that you're not, first of all, breaking your web page and stuff like that. So what this allows you to do is put it either on your server or on your web page and it will do the check for you real quickly. And I believe it will do some other stuff too, uh, not just the check. So check it out. Um, I don't really have too much information about it, but it seems like something that I could actually be using in the future as well because I do have a lot of applications that go out and do grab grab json that could you know fail every once in a while so it's better to do an actual validation on that json uh before you display anything and then you know if 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 the json is incorrect or it's not correct it's not properly formatted you can show an error message or you can go in and try to correct it if it's a common mistake and actually just to mention something as well so this actually is for the both four and five that you have here so fun fact for those people who maybe are just making websites or just doing some freelance work the reason why some companies don't fix things immediately on their web apps or apps or games or whatever it is, uh, is because they actually, if they need to fix one thing, they need to go through a whole bunch of tests. And that's why automating tests is super helpful because obviously automating anything is helpful, but you might think, well, all you did was change the, all, all you did was change the nav bar. You know, why are you testing everything? But imagine shipping uh, a new nav bar on a phone only to have it so that the display driver doesn't boot up. So phone manufacturers among anything else, uh, what else? Microphone people, like whatever, any, anything that has firmware, anything like that. If they do any change, they have to run through a list of tests. And the reason why I mentioned this with both is that when it comes to websites in particular, if the JSON is incorrect, oftentimes an API will say, you know, upon your first thing, it'll say, we don't keep calling me like every time a user searches or something sync your own data. So take a copy of my data, plop it into your own database and then do it. So in terms of both of these, one of your tests might be running this tool, right? Oh, one of my, I don't know whether these two tools work together. I just wanted, I'm talking in terms of procedurally. I don't know if these two tools work together, although it'd be cool if they, they did. They, they for sure can. They for sure can. Okay. So one of the tests might be is that you run this, this schema validator, like you sync all your data, you run the schema validator. And one day that API has a problem. 
now you don't want to sync the sh- like the shite data. You don't want to sync the garbage data. You want to you want to keep your data. It's just a little out of date now. So then you throw an error to the admins, but the users don't get affected. And you're like, hey, my data is now a day old. I got to contact that API or I got to see what's going on here. Or your automated test might be if it fails three times, then call. Maybe this thing, you know, APIs and stuff go down. Your data might be an hour old or something, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. That's a that's a good use case for both of those uh, libraries. So good call, Matt. Uh, next thing here is Recoil, which is an experimental state management library for React apps. It provides several capabilities that are difficult to achieve with React alone, while also being compatible with the newest features of React. So ex- state management libraries allow like allow components to share information, essentially. So in in a in a framework like React or Vue, there's a lot of components, and the real difficult part is passing information between them without confusing the application, without breaking stuff, without having you know collisions of like or incorrect data being passed forward back and forth. Uh, that's what these kinds of state management libraries do. The, as far as I understand it, with Recoil, I read about it a little bit. Is that it does it really simply. So a big problem with some of the React libraries that I've looked at. Redux and stuff like that, it is a little bit complicated to set up for a small project. So if I had a small project, I would be hesitant to set up a big state management library because of the overhead that it provides in development. So you have to do like, you know, five different things to pass data through. Whereas Recoil, I believe, and again, this is one of those things I could be wrong with because I'm not a React guy, but I believe it allow you to do it, you know, fairly simply uh, and it does have a lot of robust features so if your app does scale you can scale it to a point where it's still a pretty fully featured state management library so that's what i like about it so it allows you to do simple stuff and it'll, it kind of scales next thing here is react auto suggest uh, so this is just like an autocomplete functionality uh, little um, plugin for react uh, I've used a bunch of uh, autocomplete plugins and I o- I'm always looking for a new one. So I'll keep an eye on this one and see if it comes to Vue because I know a lot of React plugins will then get converted to Vue a lot of the time because really it's just JavaScript, right? Like if they're writing logic-based code, someone can go in there, whether it be, you know, if it's it's an open source project, which it is, someone might put, put a pull request in and create a like a, a different branch for Vue. So I'm going to keep an eye on it. I'm always looking for something new for the auto-suggest because I do use some auto-suggest libraries, and they are a little bit old. I've actually been putting my own work into it to optimize it a little bit. So I'm, you know, I'm always up for something new. Next thing here, uh, it's number eight actually, is Go.js, which is a JavaScript and TypeScript library for creating and manipulating diagrams, charts, and graphs. This one is interesting uh, because if you want to show something in graph or diagram or chart form, and you want it to be responsive, and you want it to be... Um, maybe animated a little bit or something like that inside of uh, a website, really all you're left with is SVGs or images, but this will allow you to actually make it with a library and allow you to have some dynamic components in it. So for instance, if you have like a flow diagram that you want to show on your website and you want the flow to be kind of dynamic, so like, you know, this flows into this and if this and this, then flow into that. So like a dynamic flow chart with something like this library, you could actually achieve that. Whereas with images, it would be a lot more of a pain because you'd have to, again, put in the image, uh, put, you know, put another div on top of that image, put the text on top of that image. Then 
somehow do like the, the really tough part for me would be doing the arrows because they can do like curved arrows and stuff and, and all that. Like, I don't, I don't know how you would do the arrows uh, with just strictly CSS. I'm 99% sure there's a way to do it. And I'm sure that's how this library does it with strictly uh, CSS. But I think that's, that's the complexity that they're trying to make easier for you with, with this kind of library. So next thing here is rough notation. This one's kind of cool. Um, check it out, Matt. Actually, go go to the go to the website if you if you can, because this might be something you're you might be interested in at some point. Uh, it allows you to kind of replace your bolds, your stuff like that, with some really bolds, underlines, circle like, and you can circle stuff on an actual HTML page. So if you look at the example, and again, all these things will be linked in the show notes. I'll, I have a, a I'll have a link to the article that I'm reading. It's a dev.2 article that lists 33 of the top repositories. I'm only going to talk about 10, but it has a lot more in there. So please check it out. Uh, it's it going to be in our show notes and you'll be able to see the actual demonstration. But the cool thing is, is that it allows you to kind of put some character to your blog posts, put some character to your, uh, you know, instructions, your FAQ or whatever you want. You, you're, you're allowed to annotate, like you can underline you can put a box around a certain word or a set of words or a sentence you can highlight that sentence and it kind of does it in a really cool artistic style it, it looks like it looks you're, like someone you're circling it with a stylus like you're like exactly you know, circling it or, or crossing something out it, it's really cool actually i just checked it out it's really cool yeah it's really cool i could see i you know i could see us using it at some point with um something maybe something on the hat site like if we have a blog post and we're trying to you know make a point sometimes putting a circle we're talking about like making a technical report we might make a bad one intentionally yeah. and then show the strike throughs and be like this is the this is the wrong it was wrong with this and this and this exactly yeah and this could be a cool fun way of doing that so yeah uh sounds like an interesting an interesting library might check it out and this last one this last one kind of had me excited because i think matt just would use this and i think i would use this even uh, it's called Responsively App, which is a modified browser. So it's an entire browser, probably built on Chromium, built using Electron that helps in responsive web development. And the cool thing about this one is what it allows you to do is select a bunch of different devices and it'll show all those devices on the screen at the same time. So, you know, put in all the all your phones. So like an S, you know, an S6, iPhone 5, uh maybe a Note 10 Plus or something, you know, put all the devices that you care about, maybe all the different sizes, put in like a, t a tablet and then put in a regular like desktop computer, see it all on one page and then interact with it all with one cursor. So when you click on something like the menu and you open the menu, it'll open on all the devices at the same oh, time. Oh, I didn't so you, see that part. That's yes, pretty so it'll, it'll save you from clicking on all the different devices. So you can do one interaction. It'll show you how that interaction looks on all the different devices. It'll hold, show you, you scroll once, scrolls all the different devices at the same time. So I think for sure this one will at least test out. That's that's pretty awesome. I think... I think this one I'll probably start using almost immediately because like right now we're building it quite a, actually quite a few Webflow projects. Um, but <clears throat> we have some WordPress stuff that we have in production and I actually just got emailed about some WordPress stuff. So I'm going to be doing some WordPress stuff and the WordPress stuff obviously doesn't have as nice of a tester on Webflow, but also Webflow I'd like to double check when I'm done, when I publish. So this will allow me to quickly check webflow stuff and any of our wordpress stuff or any of our other obviously couch cms or anything else that we've built which is going to be super nice actually yep so yeah uh and i th that's about it for the top 10 there's plenty of more here again check out the show notes check out the actual article on dev.2 that we're going to be linking uh 
yeah, it, it, see, it seems pretty interesting. All these, all this stuff is cool. So the, the other thing I want to, I want to mention is again, this, this kind of idea for our web news has been suggested a couple times to us, look at open source projects, promote open source work. And I agree with that. Um, and this is the first time that we're doing it. I, I'm not ready to commit to doing something like on a monthly basis, because a lot of the times, you know, the May 20, May 2020 top 10 might be almost the same as the June 2020 top 10, but I'll be looking at it monthly and I'll make a decision when I want to do it. And let us know in the social medias, you know, HTML, everything on Twitter, HTML, the things on in Instagram. If you like this kind of content, go on our Discord, chat with us on, about it. And the more, you know, the more you tell us that you like it, the more likely that I'll keep doing it. Maybe I'll have some series where I deep dive into some of these uh, and we'll do like maybe a whole episode on a few of them or a whole episode on one of them if it's really interesting, stuff like that. We do want to promote open source content, open source uh, stuff because we use it all the time and we want that kind of that community to grow more and more. Yeah, that I was going to say that this th- this stuff, uh, like all these libraries and projects and all the rest of it is definitely stuff that sort of d- deserves attention, but can easily fall through the cracks. It's something that I can so easily, like, I didn't hear about any of this, any of this stuff. And I would have been, a no, I would be asking myself or I have been for years about, hey, how can I quickly test, like, responsibly, since it's the freshest in my mind right now, how can I quickly test on all these different devices and all the rest of it? But yet, I would never have looked that up. It's just one of those things where I would just assume it doesn't exist. Or if it did exist, that I would hear about it, right? And so I get it, for sure. And I, I think you're right. Where there's not enough open source projects that are c- catching enough wind, if you will, right? It's it's more so. It's more so. I think when there's enough to show, we'll definitely show them off. And I actually didn't know you were being asked to do this, so that's interesting. Um, but also, I think it'd be interesting to if, like, let's say we try responsively and we just love it, or we try annotate and we just love it. We could always just talk about that one particular thing as well. And I agree with you, you know, because this type of stuff can so easily fall through the cracks, the community is going to be our greatest tool against, not against this, but for this. (laughs) So if you find something that you really like, even if it's one of these and you want to tell us about your use case and tell us about your thing, or you have a, maybe you made a YouTube video yourself about it, showing off how useful it is, you know, send that to us because that type of stuff comes up on the show all the time. We even, our discord server has at least quote unquote sponsored, um, you know, four or five or like spawned four or five episode ideas. And even more so in the last few months as well, as everyone's kind of sitting at home and I'm in, and Mike and I have been working on the same projects for a while. Our ideas are a bit more stagnant. And so we get ideas from conversations that happen in there or questions that we get asked. So absolutely. If you think that responsively or AGV or test cafe or whatever it is, any of these things are awesome and you use them and you have a really cool use case and it really saved you time. Tell us because we might do a whole episode on it or even a whole web news on it or something like that. Tell, tell us about it on our discord, tag us, Instagram, whatever. And we'll, like, I'll, I'll go take a look short of me having to buy a Mac, which I'm not going to do. Um, I'll, I'll check it out. That's, that's totally fine. I have an iPad. So if I can do it on there, then you know, that, that's, that's fine by me. But, um, I think that really concludes the episode. I think we've really covered a bunch of great stuff here in this episode. Lots of rants, lots of actual just straight up sort of textbook information. Um, I'm absolutely going to be trying responsively. I'm absolutely going to be trying that 
that uh, what was that that presentation app as well actually because I'm just gonna try it out. I'm gonna try that plus the the built-in OBS sort of way to do it and just see what I like. So I'm gonna give it a go and maybe that'll be something I show up on t- show on Twitch or whatever. And uh, I guess that's something else we should mention. We mentioned a few times, but Mike is streaming on Twitch. I'm gonna be streaming on Twitch soon as well, and you'll kind of get a a look at both sides of the business. Right now I'm kind of using stuff for no code, but then I'm going to be doing a little bit more sysadmin stuff with WordPress because I don't I don't code in PHP myself. So I'm going to be doing that. Uh, and then you'll see me hacking some stuff together in in, in Webflow because I know JS and, and that type of thing. So I, I can, you know, hack things into Webflow and expand its functionality. And I already have a couple of ideas that I've already discussed with Mike on how to sort of expand that Webflow functionality. So we're going to be going from no code to kind of hybrid code and no code. Uh, and uh, talking about all that great stuff. But as uh, as we always do, uh, remember that we're also on that Patreon, and we also have our $3 patrons to thank. So we have Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at youtube.com slash rabbitworks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at localpathcomputing.com. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Selfmade Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review in the platform that you're listening to this on. And we, hopefully, will have a better contrasting intro. Are signing off with this new outro that I don't have a proper transition for. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.